Welcome to another episode of Civic Cipher. I'm your host, Ramses Ja. They call me Q Ward. The Q stands for Quinton. Yes, for those that don't know. Listen, educate yourself. That's the man that you need to know about. Um, yeah, man. Back to do it to you one more time. True to form. Got a lot to talk about this week. Uh, in the going as on, always, indeed. Um, the goings on of uh, of Black America. Um, stick around. We got a great show for you. We want to talk about the census. We got a lot of information back from the census. Remember that annoying thing that we all had to participate in? Well, we're going to learn how the com- the country has been evolving and how things look and how the land lays with respect to the population and demographics and what that means. Um, also, we're going to talk about another unfortunate police shooting that took place in uh, San Bernardino County in California. Uh, where an officer executed an unarmed black man, uh, this time in a porta potty. Um, and we're going to peel away some of the layers of that and really find out what's going on and what's being done to address that. And of course, uh, we're going to have to say his name so that his life is not snuffed out in vain, so that there's another lesson that we can learn from and hopefully move forward with a little bit more momentum toward making the world more equitable for all of us. Um, also, we're going to talk about our Baba section. That was it. Sorry. <laughs> our Baba section. Uh, I really wanted to share this story that happened uh, at the Olympics where um, an athlete uh, get, ran into some trouble, had someone look out for him, and uh, a really good story came of it. And I think there's a lesson we can all learn from that. But first, let's talk about some Ebony Excellence. How about that? Let's do it. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. So... The name Ava DuVernay, does that mean anything to you, Q? Absolutely. I'm actually a huge fan of hers. What's going on with her? Well, um, I am not as perhaps as intimately familiar with her, but um, I do know one of the shows that she did. It's called When They See Us. Uh, for those that don't know or maybe didn't watch When They See Us, it was a big film on Netflix. I want to say maybe year and a half ago somewhere around there yeah it's hard for me to measure time the, the pandemic, pandemic really yeah. messed up my my calendar reference yeah exactly so i don't even know how long ago that was sure when the pandemic started was that two years ago was that last year was that earlier it's like i'm it, very very off something like that but um yeah, she put on this great show, and it was about the what, what were known at the time as the Central Park Five, now referred to as the Exonerated Five, uh, five kids that were accused of raping a woman in the in Central Park in New York City, um, who ultimately were innocent of the crime. But you know, New York and Donald Trump and everyone had it out for them. They got convicted, and they actually went to prison for a crime they didn't commit. She did a, a film on that story for modern times, so we could look back and find out more about the story and have some insight well she is putting together a show for lavar burton for those that don't know lavar burton really uh tried to go hard and audition for the jeopardy spot after alex trebek passed away and there was a lot of fan support a lot of support of that online and ultimately lavar burton was passed over and so ava duvernay with all of her 
power, star power and, and her Hollywood might is putting together a game show specifically for LeVar Burton and hopefully is going to capitalize on that. And I think that that is an excellent example of Ebony excellence. And so we wanted to shout out Ava DuVernay for what she's doing and what she continues to do um, for. How did they pass on the like, have they not seen a reading rainbow? Well, not like, just, are they serious? Not just that. I think that really in terms of the online uh, presence and the, and the online petitions that were behind LeVar Burton's um, campaign, I think that speaks volumes to what it is the people wanted and what, are the, what the people would have been enthusiastic about. So the fact that they passed over him, I think even further illuminates why it's necessary oftentimes for black people to have the capacity to create a black space so that black voices can be heard, which is... You know, we, we have to give credit to a lot of the programmers that carry our show because these are folks that are giving us an opportunity to share our black voices with other black folks, but also for folks who empathize and sympathize and um, are supporters of black people's plight uh, with respect to social justice. So, um, again, Agreed. shout out to Ava DuVernay. Um, but now it's time for us to talk about the census. So. I'll go first. Uh, for those that don't know, the census, it happens every 10 years. So we have a, and it happens on the 10th year. So 1990, 2000, 2010, the most recent one was 2020. And so we have a decade by decade accounting of the population in this country and how the population is spread out, you know, how much money people make, their education levels, um, their ethnic makeup, and that's what we're going to focus on today, and so forth. And we have, we're able to chart this data since the beginning of the, f the first census that we ever did in this country. And something that's interesting, and I thought was worth talking about today, is for the first time, the number of white people fell, uh, according to the census. Now, I have a report here, it's from the Washington Post, and uh, I'll, I'll read a little bit from it. Uh, the report marks the first time the absolute number of people who identify as white alone has shrunk since the census started being taken in 1790. The number of people wow. identifying as non-Hispanic white and no other race dropped by 5.1 million people to 191.7 million, a decrease of 2.6%. The country also passed two more milestones on its way to becoming a majority minority society in the coming decades. For the first time, the portion of white people dipped below 60%, slipping from 63.7% in 2010 to 57.8% in 2020. And the under 18 population is now majority people of color at 52.7%. So, wow. 52.7% to one degree or another signa signals that sometime in the next, that's, that's proof positive right there, that sometime in the next, we'll call it 30 years, especially if this trend continues, um, but perhaps even before that, certainly within our lifetimes, we're going to see that white people will make up less than half of the population in this country. And I think that it's important for us to discuss this. Now, let me start by saying, I recognize that this show exists to 
illuminate certain facets of the black experience that are not available to a lot of our listeners. Um, and, and I don't want to pretend like that's not what we're here to do. But I think that we also need to understand what's going on with, I don't want to call this our adversity, but there's a huge s significant uh, population in middle America that I, I, I can't speak for these people, but I would, I would guess that they, maybe they're not enemies. They're not people who are like, all oh, black people need to die and all Mexican people need to go to Mexico. Like they're not those people, but they're also not people who are really concerned about what goes on with black folks and brown. They're really just trying to focus on them. They really couldn't care less. They found Jesus and they got a couple shotguns and they're like, listen, man, I don't know any black people. I don't know any Hispanics folks. I'm just doing me. Um, so they're indifferent to our experience. That's a great way of saying it. Thank you. Um, more or less indifferent. I love that. Now, for these people, because they're indifferent to our experience, they, their, their disconnect from our experience really creates a, an uphill battle for us. You know, um, indifference is really the thing that holds us back because there's not a, there's not a huge opposition per se for the things that black people and Hispanic folks have historically asked for. It's not a huge opposition, but there's a huge amount of people where it's just not their fight. They don't care one way or the other. And it's those people's silence that allows that vocal minority opposition um, to feel like a, and it feels like an equal sort of match, if you will, right? Yeah. Now, um, there's been a lot of great leaders who have really spoken to that that white apathy that exists in some parts of this country where they just can't identify, they can't really get out of their own, you know, their own world and their own reality to see that the world might be different for someone else or don't care to. And I recognize that that's very important in keeping us from moving forward. But if we can address and we can really find a way to be brothers and sisters with those people, perhaps we can bring them into our world. We can exchange information and exchange perspectives. And this is, granted, I'm, I'm an idealist. I'm one of those people that, you know, believes that the world has infinite potential and that we all as brothers and sisters on this planet have infinite potential to, to love each other and be better to each other and kinder. Um, but I think that this also helps frame why there's that disconnect this this illuminates what it is that they might think that their problems are um a great way of putting it is you know if white pop if the white population is shrinking then that means that the world is changing and their position in the world is shifting and there's got to be some 
to, to some degree or another and a shift in identity or I wouldn't call it an identity crisis because it's a slow moving train. But that has to have some sort of effect on the way things feel to you. And if it becomes scary to you that, OK, we're, we're losing in terms of the population, we're becoming the minority. These other folks are really growing. Then it's really easy for that vocal minority to pitch this narrative that we're losing this country to this type of people, those type of people, that type of people. Let's get back to fighting for our country. And then in those narratives, you can kind of instill this idea of patriotism, this idea of return to the way things once were, you know, and then you can point to data that says, look, clearly you're losing this, quote, fight. You know, this is just the way this is Mother Nature. Mother Nature has decided that we're all going to interbreed and we're all going to, you know, propagate the species in, in such a way to where we become stronger, better you know, healthier, live longer lives and um, are more intelligent, et cetera. Um, but, you know, let get, let the wrong people tell the story. You know, you can get folks really scared about population shift. And then there are some other things in here that I would love to get your thoughts on. But first, let me read this first part. Um, again, this is from the Washington Post. The new data shows how ethnic, racial and voting age makeup of neighborhoods have shifted over the past decade based on the national house-to-house canvas last year. It is the data most state legislatures and local governments use to redraw political districts for the next 10 years. The opioid epidemic and lower-than-anticipated birth rates among millennials after the Great Recession accelerated the white population's decline. Uh, And then it goes on to say, Asian people who made up about 3% of the population in 1990 also doubled the share share to 6.1% while the black population share held steady at 12.1%. So um, I want to also focus on the lower birth rates, lower than anticipated birth rates and the opioid epidemic. So what happens is white people are also dying at a faster rate while they're failing to repopulate. And those two things make just the shifting because if the numbers are just shifting i could point to nature and say like yeah that's just you know there's people now identifying as two races or there's you know folks that are more comfortable checking a box and identifying with who they really are versus you know whatever i can i can make up a bunch of stuff like that and people can excuse it but when you when you look at the statistics that say people are dying at a way higher rate and they're pointing to a epidemic the opioid epidemic and saying that you know the birth rates are falling then it becomes like oh wow do we panic and i think it's important for us to understand that the reality for our caucasian brothers and sisters might be shifting and there might be a basis for this fear that some of these folks have there might be a basis for this um paranoia and when there's a basis for it and someone gives them the right narrative, then it's easy to, you know, go down that path. It's not to say that these are good, decent folks because a good number of them are not that. But it is to say that when the world is shifting around you and someone gives you an enemy to point to, 
it's really easy to say, oh, this is the source of my problems and then take up arms or take up a flag with a blue stripe on it or take up a Trump flag or whatever and say, I'm going to stand with my people. It's us versus them. Let's go to war. And I'm not trying to say that that's okay. I would never do that. Certainly would never do that on this show, but I would never do it anyway. I don't believe that that's the case, but I do recognize that us fighting against each other is never going to get us anywhere. It's going to decrease the birth rates and the, and the, you know, the living rates for both sides, you know, and, and the quality of life in the interim. But I do recognize that if we have conversations that speak to these concerns and we know how to empathize and we know how to, I, I don't know the, the, the right conversation. I don't have the language, of course, but if we have the capacity and the empathy for a shifting world and the uncertainty that a lot of our Caucasian brothers and sisters, middle America types um, are facing that once upon a time, the American dream was theirs. And now it's, you know, they see their family dying of drug overdoses and their parents are addicted to pills. And, you know, the, the population is shifting and someone gives, and they're not, they're not millionaires and rock stars like they were promised. You know, the American dream is everyone grows up and you're going to be famous and you're going to do this and that and the other. And they grow up and that's not true for them, you know? And then someone says, comes along and says, well, you know, we don't have jobs because everyone's taking the jobs to Mexico or China or whatever. And again, not to empathize, but it is to say, okay, there's a connection between this, that, and the other thing. And if, if we know that, then perhaps a conversation might still work because if people can learn something, they can unlearn it. They can recognize, okay, there's different sources and there's different ways to tell these stories. The numbers don't always explain themselves readily to people who are uninitiated to interpreting data. And so I think that that is important for us to talk about because I still believe that I don't want to say we can talk our way through this the part of our lives, you know what I mean? But I do believe that conversations and education, and, and fortunately we have a show and a platform to share with our listeners and people that listen to our show are the type of people who would have conversations out in their respective circles and, you know, provide a little bit of, you know, levity when that, when it matters and context when that matters and insight and, and so forth. And in this case, perhaps bringing along a little bit of empathy. So that's what, those are my thoughts on the population shift. How do you feel about it? It's interesting listening to um, that point of view, because I agree with really everything that you said. The, I don't know if sad is the right word, but the kind of discouraging point is that the idea that an entire group, an entire portion of our population would be prone to fear of there being less of what they deem the pure race, right? Because there's not going to be less people in general. Um, but like you said, there might be more people that are inclined or brave enough to check that other box that they once upon a time would have avoided. Um, especially people that could pass for white when it seemed that I'd have a better existence, a better life and a better experience in this world. If, 
I identify as a white person. So our sons and daughters growing up together, falling in love and having children should be celebrated. Except we have this ever <laughs> this ever taught uh, and ever ingrained system of white supremacy that would teach people that they should be afraid and scared that something's going to be taken away from them based on that. Um, and it, it points to something that we highlight on almost every show um, that a very, very um, cornerstone principle of the foundation of our country was white supremacy and, you know, chattel slavery coming from that idea, this entire uh, group of people that were thought of as less than and beneath an entire other group were actually Every group of people was thought of as beneath um, white people in this country. So the fact that those numbers going down would be something that would stoke fear in people really just points to how far we still have to go. Um, encouraging, though, because one day uh, my brother Ramses definitely feels like one day there will be some ground made up by that silent majority, right? Because the, 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 the statistics are starting to bear truth that there are just in number less people prone to continue to teach and prop up this world where we're looking down at people who are different than us and considering them beneath us. But that minority is loud and they are in positions of power and influence still. And as long as they're in those positions, we can see it. They are fighting tooth and nail to maintain that system that they created to keep stoking those fires of fear, to keep creating division whenever they can and to keep as much power and influence for themselves and their children as they can. So, you know, our voice isn't as loud as I wish it, as I wish it was, or as loud as it may be one day, but we do have a voice. We are having these conversations as difficult as they may be to have some time. Um, I'm encouraged at the idea that this next generation has more people that identify as some mixture of things than just singularly white. Um, not because I have an issue at all with white people, but the exact opposite. The idea that if my son or your son or the sons and daughters of our white brothers and sisters could meet each other and not just become friends, but fall in love, start families, whatever the case, and that not be something that's frowned upon by the masses. Um, our hopes, my hopes more specifically, is that those who have remained silent and indifferent for centuries could just care a little bit more, speak a little bit louder, and we can have a better representation of what the country really looks like, really thinks like, really feels like, than we seem to when it's time to cast our votes. And, and shout out to the people who actually participated in the census. Because a lot of people, I don't think, understand how important it is. Actually, now that you mentioned that, so um, I was I participated in getting, 
you know, folks to vote or to participate in the census and vote. But um, I was really helpful in my city. And, uh, you know, where I live, there's, you know, a lot of Hispanic people, folks who are undocumented and, you know, or they're related to someone undocumented. So there's some underrepresentation of my Hispanic brothers and sisters. So I want to read this. It's a quote from Arturo Vargas, who's the chief executive of the NALEO Educational Fund, a Latino advocacy group. He said the numbers for Hispanics were, quote, lower than expected, but not a surprise because the initial apportionment numbers in April were lower than we expected, end quote. Nevertheless, quote, it is it is extraordinary that Latinos accounted for more than 50 percent of growth for all the total U.S. population. He said that more than one out of two new Americans is a Latino speaks volumes about the policies and decisions leaders need to make to ensure a strong America of the future. We need investments in Latino children. The children in our classrooms today are our future doctors and lawyers and political leaders. And I love that because that also remember the black population relatively is the same huge growth with Latino numbers and it was still, in his belief, in his estimation, underreported. And so that is the changing world that we live in. Um, it's not good or bad. It just is what it is, and we have to deal with it. And we will. And now, proper propaganda. Watch it. Pull my mic back. You like that? Journalists with journalists, too. We can strike back. Hardcore reporters with orders from headquarters. Behind enemy lines, sidestepping the borders. If you're just tuning in to Civic Cypher, I'm your host, Ramses Ja. Most people call me Q. My mother sometimes calls me Quentin. She even sometimes sometimes calls me Dirty. And that's just a, that's a different <laughs> conversation. I'll teach you guys about that one another day. <laughs> well, um... Please stick around uh, because we have some more things to talk about. Um, coming up, we're going to, of course, uh, dig into our Way Black History Fact with uh, DJ Swirl. And uh, we're going to talk about um, an Olympian who was able to track down a kind stranger for our Baba segment. So let's get into that right now. Um. So, have you been watching the Olympics, Q? I didn't watch the Olympics as enthusiastically as I planned to. Sure. Um, shout out to Kenneth Ferguson and Allison Felix, my teammate from high school, and his wife, Allison, got her 11th Olympic medal. So I definitely tuned in whenever Allison was competing. But once uh, Shakari Richardson was suspended... I was grossly discouraged because I was very, very excited to see her run. And she's running this weekend at the Prefontaine Classic, and she will be competing against the three Jamaican sprinters that won gold, silver, and bronze at the Olympics. So that should be pretty exciting. So that sounds like a yes. And I'm glad you said Jamaican because two things are true. One is I didn't watch any Olympics. Again, I'm a DJ, not a sports guy. I do music. <laughs> the other is that this story is about a Jamaican man. And uh, long story short, um, he was on his way to uh, an event. I, I think he's a hurdler. He was on his way to an event, got lost in Japan. Um, got on the wrong bus. Got on the wrong bus. That was it. And he ended up having to go back and he was late for his meet. 
And so now he needed a car, like a direct way to get there. And a stranger gave him money um, to get in a car. And then after he won the gold medal, he went back and found the stranger. It was a little lady. And he repaid her, brought her a shirt, took a picture with her, and, and of course thanked her. And our Baba is not for him. It's for her. I didn't get her name, but her Instagram is at D underscore Tree Fairy. And... You know, it, it for a lot of folks, especially in, in our experience, it takes a lot to be able to even have a, a black person approach you if you're, you know, a non-black woman, you know, um, out on the street, at, even if he's asking for help. You know, just I think the world has conditioned a lot of folks to be leery of that. Not everyone, but some folks. So the fact that she not only was able to help, but also was gave him money. I think that that shows uh, a lack of prejudice and I want to see more of that in the world. So shout out to at D underscore tree fairy, whatever your real name is. We salute you. Thank you for being a better ally. Um, and now on to some less cool news. Mm. All right. Always that. <laughs> that's, that's the name of the game. So uh, we're going to talk about somebody who is no longer alive again on civic cipher um so let's dig into it um this article comes from the grio uh, it's another publication that tells black stories that may not make it to newsweek cnn you know fox of course um so i'll get into it uh Headline, unarmed man fatally shot by California police in portable toilet. Fontana police on Thursday released a statement narrated by Chief Billy Green from the fatal encounter. Green said the man, this is his name, Deverion DeAndre Kennard, was holding a, quote, metallic object in his hand as he sat on the portable toilet, and it turned out to be a lighter. Kennard was killed February 13th, the day before his 29th birthday. The city of Fontana has agreed to settle with his parents. Um, according to the Press Inter Enterprise, the law firm that represented the family in the legal claim did not immediately respond to requests for comment. So let's start there. Um, first thing, this happened in February. We're hearing about it now. That's mostly because people need to investigate um, video footage. They need to investigate what happened and there's a certain amount of time allowed for people to release um, body cam footage uh, and it varies from state to state. I'm sure it varies from department to department. Um, and so that's why this story is just making its way to us. Um, and to be fair, because I don't have to be unfair to the police, to be fair to the police, sometimes those investigations turn up surprises. It's very rare, but it does happen. And so if they need to investigate, they need to investigate. But we on this show cannot afford to let lives just get snuffed out without holding someone accountable, without telling the story and without bringing some, without illuminating it so that we're aware that this wasn't just, <laughs> uh, you know, George Floyd. This wasn't just Michael Brown. This wasn't just Breonna Taylor. This wasn't just, you know, Eric Garner. This wasn't just, you know, pick a name. Um, that these are things that still continue to happen every day. Um, and these 
things very much shape the way the world looks for a lot of black and brown folks. So um, in this case, it's Deverion DeAndre Kennard who lost his life. Now, I'm going to tell the story before I read it, just so that um, there are no surprises here. In my estimation, based on what the video held, I didn't watch the video. Did you watch it, Q? So because of the status of this case, it's still being investigated. The family has, a, you know, there's a criminal investigation. There's a civil suit that the family, I think, settled for a million dollars with that police department. Okay. The video footage is not readily available. There are screenshots of the video, but that's all that we're able to see right now per the request of the family and the police department. Okay. Okay. So I read the report uh, for me, a person who values life and by extension, a person who values black life. I, I just can't keep watching people get executed on video every week and we've talked about it you know many times on the show that we have a system where sometimes i'll watch a video sometimes q watches a video i think this one i passed along to q unfortunately there was no video there but i just i don't have the mental bandwidth to watch human beings get executed as they're hiding in porta potties but i did read the story so i'll share with uh you the listener what i know um in my estimation, based on the way the story was written in the griot, um, this man, Davarion, was, he broken into a house, and he was leaving the house carrying uh, like a TV or something like that. Um, and the police, or the, the people in the house called the police, the police showed up, and then he fled the scene. Davarion fled the scene. So that has to be established that you know this guy was caught in the act if you will right um lots of people have stolen things in the past not saying what this man did was right if he if in fact he did it he never got to go to court never got to say his piece we don't know if that was his tv we don't know the story he's not here to tell it but um if if we're going to assume worst case scenario that he was in a home stealing something um Oftentimes, that is a crime that can be, you know, folks can be rehabilitated from that. Oftentimes, there's a reason for that, you know, um, and we can save the human being. We can save the life. We can save the heartbeat. We can save the consciousness, and we can rehabilitate the criminal behavior. Um, oftentimes, that will happen, or at least there's an opportunity for that to happen, a greater opportunity for that to happen if the person is less melanated and that has been the experience that I've had in my lifetime at now 39 years as of today of living is my birthday. So I had to shout, shout out myself one time. Happy birthday, <laughs> sir. Thank you, man. Um, but yeah, um, that is not a death sentence. Um, and this man shouldn't be, shouldn't be gone if in fact he was guilty of the crime. Now, the way the story goes is he fled and he hid in a, porta potty um which is what creatures do when they're afraid or they, you know they want to deal with whatever um that's not just a human condition every every creature who's alive will do that if they feel like they're in some kind of danger or jeopardy um or their freedom is being jeopardized um you know it's something that at least folks will consider like can i get away from this um so he's hiding in a 
porta potty and he has a lighter as as the article mentioned he had a, had a lighter in one hand lighter is a tiny little thing about the size of your finger um and in the other hand it was empty now my guess is that if he's hiding at night in a porta potty, he's perhaps using the lighter for light. That's my guess, but you know who knows. Now I'll read a little bit more. Um, Officer Johnny Tutavake, maybe I got that wrong, who was identified in the settlement, was sworn into the department in February 2019. Um, he remains on duty. Uh, the shooting remains under investigation by the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office to see if any criminal charges will be filed. Um, and just so you know, we don't anticipate any criminal charges being filed ever. Um, very, very rarely does that ever happen. And even rarer still does it result in a conviction. Uh, the Fontana police are conducting an internal review to determine if departmental policy was followed in the video, which includes a 911 call about a residential burglary in progress. Footage from a doorbell camera shows a man walking around the home and removing a screen from a window, taking it out of view. So so I guess that screen was not a TV, it's perhaps a window screen. Uh, the man who police say was Kennard went into the home through the window. Police arrived and found the screen removed and saw Kennard inside. He ran out the back door as police officers followed on foot and by car and searched the area. About a thousand feet from the home, Tutivake found a portable toilet and opened the door, shining his flashlight. Due to the limited lighting in this case, the footage does not clearly show what the officers saw. Green, the police chief, said. The video shows Kennard fully clothed, sitting on the toilet with his arms folded in his lap. He appeared to wave to the officer with his left hand. His palm is open and nothing is in his hand. Then Kennard rolled, quote, rolled a metallic object in his right hand toward the officer. Green said to Tivake, closed the portable toilet's door and took out his gun. The police department shows this with screenshots of the footage because it occurs too quickly to see in real time video. To Tivake then reopened the door and filed a single shot, killing Kennard. Green said the entire encounter from when Tutivake first opened the door to opening fire was 2.5 seconds. Quote, the object in his hand was a lighter, the chief said, end quote. So that's what we got. Now, I don't know how many different ways we can retell the same story. But we're going to have to figure our way through it. So your initial thoughts, Q. Talk to me. Let's assume all the worst. He was a career criminal. He stole TVs and stuff from people's houses every day. And he was not going to be rehabilitated. That should not be a crime punishable by, punishable by death, even still. Like, even if we don't give him the benefit of the doubt in any way, positively, the man did not deserve to die because he stole something and even more so had the homeowner pursued the thief to the porta potty outside of their home and murdered them the homeowner would be on trial for at least manslaughter the person whose house this guy broke into would not have been able to pursue him to a porta potty and murder him so 
I mean, my initial response is the same as always. Not only did this man not deserve to die for this, but no one does. And that is the sentiment that we continue to echo when we scream that black lives matter. We're not telling you to prioritize black life. We're not even requesting that you celebrate it the way that we do. Just allow it to have an existence. Like when that becomes too much to ask, that's when you guys see my heightened level of frustration because we we know that the outcomes are different when the perpetrators look different Can I when they do far more heinous things like murder multiple people when law enforcement arrives they are taken into custody to see their day in court for far more heinous crimes than breaking into someone's home and taking a television or whatever this young man took. So and I, yes, please, Rams, offer yeah, I wanna, something. I want to offer something to that. So now that I'm rereading it, um, I'm recognizing that the only thing that this article states that he actually took was a screen off of the window. I thought initially when I read it, you know, I have to peruse the articles before we actually do the show that he had taken a screen like off of the wall, like a TV screen. So I don't know why I was thinking that, but so this is just kind of like the breaking in part. I don't think it's the burglary. I don't, I don't understand from what I've read him to have uh, stolen anything. He probably was just kind of caught in someone else's house. So. I mean, um, but even it, if he stole everything. Yeah, you're, you're right. I'm just, just so that we have it nailed down here. Um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about is you're absolutely right. We've seen a lot of times police interact with non-melanated individuals with a lot more in the way of compassion and a lot less fear. And the greatest amounts of restraint that I've ever seen. Sure. Almost like, hey, we don't want to actually execute this white man for any reason we don't have to no we don't have to (laughs) they determined that they don't have to so they don't no matter how bad it gets like when we arrived he was murdering people (laughs) that was happening when we got here but you guys make sure we don't harm him exactly but in this in this instance and in so many others we see what i what i think would be described as as fear and and the fear, it, it's it's a it's a tricky thing, I believe. So fear will help you, will make you see something that's not there. You know, if you if you go into a situation expecting something to be a certain kind of a way, you know, like if you see a black man and you've associated black men with criminal behavior your whole life and gangbangers and so forth and whatever. Um, because that's what you've been fed by society. Not all black men are gangbangers. In fact, a very, very extremely tiny amount are relative to the amount of black men that exist on the planet. There's black men who've never even heard of gangbanging. You know, that's a, that's a fact. Um, but if you're taught that, then 
that becomes your reality. And you're seeing that before you see your training or before you see whatever. And so that fear takes over. So that means like, okay, I just need an excuse to pull this trigger because I'm terrified because this person is in this porta potty to kill, kill me. Not he's in there because he's scared of me. You know, he's in there waiting I've, to kill I've me. Also, I've also said before, because we kind of give, we're kind of letting people off easy with this fear thing all the time that we say. Sometimes it's not sure. fear. Sometimes it's hate. Sure, that too. That sometimes you're not afraid at all. You just can't wait to find to do what you're doing. Sure, that you're, that's you're looking for a reason. It's not a, because fear. Fear can be justified, right? It it would make sense if you're actually afraid. Yeah. For your life to protect yourself, you harm someone else. I that that would make sense to even the most compassionate person. Sure. Right. So I don't want us to always give them the the, the get out of jail free card of fear. Mm -hmm. Some of these people are not afraid at all. They just have their minds made up when they put that gun in that holster that given the right set of circumstances, they're going to take it out of that holster. And sometimes that has nothing to do with them being afraid. As the examples show, when the people are running the opposite direction of you, you you're probably not afraid of them. Yeah. I remember the, uh, the story. This might have been about maybe a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago. Um, I was at a Wendy's in uh, Atlanta. The man was in the parking lot. He was drunk. And, uh, you know, he fell asleep in his car and the police showed up and they were talking to him. Everything was friendly. And then they says, OK, we're going to arrest you. He wasn't driving. Like, we're going to arrest you. And he, was, he got freaked out. And he's like, I don't want to get arrested. Turns around, runs away. And they shot him in the back. And you're absolutely right, because fear doesn't factor into that. It can't factor into that. There's this is the least threatening behavior humanly possible. I'm running away from you, you know, so. Um, you're absolutely right. Um, and that needs to be discussed as well. But, you know, for me, giving the benefit of the doubt helps me to have, at least in this case, a little bit more fair approach to it. Let's let's be fair. Let's not villainize this person. Let's give them all the possible, you know, whatever that we can. And I bet any amount of money this will still be wrong. You know, let's give him all the latitude, all the rope that, that he can possibly use. And I'll bet it, he'll still end up hanging at the end of it. Um, the other thing that I, I want to make sure that we talk about is, <clears throat> excuse me, on this show, we do deal with policing a lot. We deal with politics, of course. We deal with day-to-day -day life and activities. And we try to talk about some happy things, you know, as well. But we deal with policing a lot. And... I recognize that the black experience exists beyond the bounds of police enforcement in our society. You know, there's lots of things that happen that affect black people uh, and brown people and native people in a lot of ways that have nothing to do with policing. But policing is the institution that oper can operate with impunity that has taken so much away from the black family structure, especially over many decades, over all this time, it is very much, in my estimation, weakened the, the black family structure and the, the, the framework of, of black society. This over-policing, um, this abusive policing, this uh, you know disproportionate jailing and, and so forth. When you look at the statistics of who's locked away and who's not, and then you look at you know, the outcomes of those decisions and you look at environments where, 
you know, black people are not thriving or prospering, you know, I think that you can tell a story uh, about how these policies and these practices have, have eroded the foundation of those black societies. And so um, policing it is, is kind of the, the front line for a huge white supremacist system that disproportionately affects, negatively affects black and brown people. And because that's the, the, that's what we bump up against very often as people in black and brown communities, um, a lot of times the stories begin and end right with policing. Sometimes they don't make it to court. Sometimes they don't make it to, you know, the other end of the story. And so I, I need folks to know that while we do talk about that a lot, we recognize the experience for black and brown folks is much broader than that, of course. But, you know, that is something that we do need to talk about in addition to all of the other things that happen on a corporate level based on, you know, how capitalism <laughs> affects black and brown people, you know, perhaps worst of all and benefits, you know, less melanated individuals most of all. And so obviously there's a lot of us who wouldn't really be huge fans of it um, and on and on. But again, policing is just one of those things that we're, we're able to really see it and see people get away with it. And there's this stunning silence that exists across America that only broke up during, you know, really the George Floyd protests in my lifetime, at least. And so certainly something worth you know talking about. But with that said, you know, we can't talk about that forever. So let's talk about something new. DJ Swirl. Sir, this week's Way Black History Fact, speaking of Jamaica, deals with Marcus Garvey, who was born this day in 1887. Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican-born black nationalist and leader of the Pan-Africanism movement, which sought to unify and connect people of African descent worldwide. In the United States, he was a noted civil rights activist who founded the Negro World Newspaper, a shipping company called Black Star Line, and the Universal Negro Improvement Association, a fraternal organization of black nationalists. As a group, they advocated for separate but equal status for persons of African ancestry, and as such, they sought to establish independent black states around the world, notably in Liberia on the west coast of Africa. Although his legacy as a leader and activist lives on, Garvest separatists and black nationalist views were not embraced by many of his peers. In fact, W.E.B. Du Bois of NAACP famously said, Marcus Garvey is the most dangerous enemy of the Negro race in America and in the world. However, Garvey's supporters prefer to focus on his key message, which was steeped in African-American pride. After all, he is credited with coining the phrase, black is beautiful. His philosophy is perhaps exemplified in the following quote, we must canonize our own saints, create our own martyrs, and elevate to positions of fame and honor black men and women who have made their distinct contributions to our racial history. I am the equal of any white man. I want you to feel the same way. And that comes from history.com. Boom. Q, what do you think? First of all, some legendary men were born on this day. Goodness gracious. Hey. Ramses Ja. Hey, man. Thank you. Marcus Garvey. 
that's 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 all I have to say about that legendary. <laughs> um, and and some of his opposition, it was it was kind of you know I compare it to. You know, I already asked my mom if I could spend the night over Ramses' house. She already said yes, so I'm not going to ask for anything more because I don't want that yes to turn into a no. So people that opposed him and found him dangerous to the the progression of black people were more afraid of the backlash because we were not in a position where we had much leverage uh, to gain any control or, or had any power or influence. So someone who was perceived as radical for his thoughts on us being separatists and, you know, black nationalists and, you know, going back to a, a land that we could call ours. Uh, people pushed back because of the, the fear of, hey, man, we're making a little bit of progress here. Don't make too much noise. You're going to take away what we have kind of thinking. So, you know, just want to lend some insight to that. I'm glad you did. Watch this. Do you know how on this show oftentimes I have to tell the truth of course but I tell a version of the truth that's perhaps a little less harsh and a little bit more palatable for our more moderate white listeners you know I can't scare this type of listener off because we need to provide them some insight without overwhelming this person, whoever this person is listening to the show. Um, we need this person to know that we consider them a brother or a sister, um, but also have some very difficult conversations and deal with a reality that they may not be privy to. Um, and so it's a delicate balance to say hey look we have a problem here but and and it's your problem as well as my problem but also not to overwhelm someone because the truth is they could live their life and you know don't care how many black people get shot in the streets as long as it's not happening to them they're fine you know they that they could conceivably have that attitude and perhaps some listeners of this show did have that attitude before 2020 you know what i mean and so I recognize that it does oftentimes take more than one perspective, black perspective, um, because there it took Malcolm, I believe, for people to listen to Mark Martin, you know, and <laughs> maybe it takes Ramses for people to listen to Q, you know, or, or <laughs> maybe it takes Show Swirl, you, right. or, you know, or something like that, you know. Um, and, or maybe it takes another show to make, to have people listen to civic cipher or vice versa. You know, I don't know that I have, I don't, I don't profess to have any answers. I would never do that. I do know that the conversations need to be had and I recognize that as a broadcaster, I'm in a position to do that. And therefore we've shifted, <laughs> you know, at least in my career, I've shifted away from, you know, playing just playing hip-hop songs to really talking about things that really matter really trying to save lives and really trying to create a better world and fortunately these various radio stations will give give us an hour of their airtime so that we can have conversations and hopefully embolden listeners allies and and black and brown folks as well so that we can all go out with this information and this 
you know, insight and try to make the world a better place. It's unfortunate that, you know, we have to deal with a lot of doom and gloom in black America, but that's, I think, a part of the cleaning up a, a process. And then maybe one day we can get to just kind of maintaining, you know, a happy fellowship with, with, you know, the other races that we share this country and this planet with. Um, and so I, with that said, I recognize that, yeah, Marcus Garvey, some of his views were not shared, as Swirl put it, um, with, you know, his counterparts at the time. And, uh, you know, as a result, he's his name is not certainly not as popular as, you know, some of the other folks. I mean, we know his name, but, you know, there's a lot of people listening right now that may have never heard of Marcus Garvey. Um, but again, I think that it takes Marcus Garvey. It takes people to say, hey, listen, I'm bla that black is beautiful and that, you know, we need to have black industry and we need to, you know, um, uh, what do you say about our own saints, canonize our own saints, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um what do you say? He said, we must canonize our own sins. Yeah, that was it. Okay, cool. So, you know, those sorts of things, that, that very uh, pro-black, black love energy is necessary alongside a, hey, let's all celebrate each other. Like, if All Lives Matter was a statement that was championed by white folks or by black folks, in addition to Black Lives Matter, then yeah, there might have been like, hey, listen, you're kind of getting away from the narrative, but we see what you're saying. You know, then it might have been s somewhere in the middle, we would have figured out a way forward. But because it was n that was not the case, and it was kind of championed largely by white folks in opposition to people just saying Black Lives Matter. Directly in opposition to people saying Black Lives Matter. Exactly. That felt extra hurtful but i do recognize that sometimes you know it takes takes two sides so you know fortunately this week we get to shout out w.e.b du bois and marcus garvey um and specifically marcus garvey but i'm glad we got to mention du bois as well and um so yeah that's our way black history fact and that's going to do it for us today on civic cypher so once again i'm your host ramses ja they call me q ward show produced by dj swirl um and yeah, download this and any other episode of Civic Cipher at civiccipher.com. Please follow us on social media. It's all at Civic Cipher. And uh, as always, you can make a donation that really helps the show grow. Um, and the show is growing. And we appreciate all your support. So with that said, until next week, y'all. Peace. Sidestepping the borders with press passes, we bring it to you as it happens. The streets love my crew for music and rapping. Street commander slash beat expander. Here to fight the slander with the proper propaganda. What's happening? You got a question that